So why begin a study of the Psalms with Psalm 19? Well, C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter. And he also said it was one of the greatest lyrics in the world. But this psalm isn't only known for its poetic beauty. It's also known for its clarity regarding God's revelation of Himself through the world and through His Word. So much so that it is the major proof text for the Belgic Confession of Faith. It says this, We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. Second, it says, God makes Himself known to us more clearly by His holy and divine Word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. Now, a couple questions came to my mind as I was thinking through this. One, why, when this psalm is so beautiful and so clear, is it not quoted more in the New Testament? Paul obviously had it in mind, and we'll talk about this, he obviously had it in mind when he wrote Romans 1, but the only time it's quoted, we, we just heard read from John in, in Romans 10. Um, it's the only time it's quoted in the entire New Testament. And the second question was this, why, if it's so beautiful and so clear, why did we not all have to memorize it in Awana or at Vacation Bible School, like we did Psalm 23? I don't have answers to those questions. Um, I just thought I'd let you in on what was going on in my mind as I thought about this. Um, But my hope is that as we've heard it read, and as we hear it read, and as we hear it preached, that maybe it will become one of our more favorite psalms. Because it reminds us, as we read it, and as we'll hear it preached, it reminds us that God has condescended. God has graciously condescended and revealed Himself to us through His world and through the Word. And because He's revealed Himself to us through those two means, we have a responsibility. Really, every man, woman, boy, and girl has a responsibility to respond or will respond in one way or another. That's the outline. We're going to look at God speaking through His world, speaking through His Word, and then how we must respond. This evening, as always, grant power to the preaching of your word. Grant all of us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear what we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding these words of yours spoken through David. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us as always. I am... Unfit for this task to which you've called me, so would you please attend to me as I do this work. Grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. 
Well, I hope you have the psalm open there in front of you. Let's look first at how God has spoken through the world. Uh, In verse 1, David says that the heavens declare the weight of His worth and glory, and that the sky proclaims His handiwork. The splendor of the sun and the moon and the stars and the brilliance of the light and the colors that we see announce the Creator's magnificence and majesty. They testify to His splendor and brilliance, and they proclaim that they are the result of an almighty, creative, and all-powerful God. Each rising and setting of the sun, each rising and setting of the moon, Each time a star appears and disappears, stars that are too numerous for any of us to count, they provide this perpetual stream of pronouncements that proclaim the manifold greatness of our Maker and Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. And it's natural, and therefore, it doesn't take any effort for us, those who have been created in His image to move from being in awe of creation to being in awe of its creator, because it's within our DNA. Paul put it this way in Romans 1. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to us, because God has shown it to us. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Well, in verse 2, he goes on to say, day-to-day pours out speech, David says, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And he simply means, while words aren't being spoken, what creation announces is clearly heard within us, inwardly through a universal language that everyone understands. No one is left out. His eternal power, His divine nature are obvious. They're clearly comprehended, again, by those who have been created in His image, by, uh, by those whose imprint has been pressed upon them. In other words, he's, what He's communicating through creation is not confusing. It is not hard. He is not hard to find. He is fully disclosing Himself. He's not hiding Himself in obscurity from those that He has created. In every astronomical and uh, earthly object and element, from the largest of stars to the smallest of atoms of helium, from every species of plants, Again, as the Belgic Confession said, from every creature great and small, His handiwork announces His existence and declares His power and His glory and His majesty. And in verses 5 and 6, David illustrates his point when he says that there's a joy, right? Even for mourning people or for non-mourning people, right? There is a joy that comes with the sunrise, because its rising is inevitable. And as it rises, it 
bursts out like a tent, races across the sky. And the heat that it provides, and the life that it generates, the light that it gives, creates a certainty within us that the sun is needed. The earth needs the sun. And while it, it, it gives us that certainty, it also leads to a certainty that, that the earth needs its maker. And of course, then it leads to a certainty that we too need our maker. We're all in need of Him. So in the end, every man... well. And let's, let's think about it too. As the sun rises and comes out of its tent and touches everything, right? the sun rises on everyone throughout the course of a day. And just as it rises and its light is seen by everyone, there is nowhere, there is no corner of the earth, there is no one who is present that can escape the realities of His glory. So in the end, every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and future, have seen the brilliance of creation and therefore have heard the preaching of creation. And the reality is that we can say without confidence that there is no such thing as a true atheist. But despite how marvelous creation is, despite how marvelous its proclamation or general revelation may be, there is something more. You see, God has not only revealed Himself generally and proclaimed His glory and power through the world, He has also revealed Himself in a special way through His Word. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It puts it this way. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men excusable, unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary." those former ways of God revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. So an all-powerful, almighty Creator God has chosen to reveal Himself to be Yahweh. Yahweh who is a personal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has spoken and continue, continues to relate to His people Intimately, truthfully, and savingly. And he does so through his written word. And David beautifully describes what beautifully describes the word in verses seven to nine. He says the word is perfect. It means it's complete and whole and sufficient. There's a comprehensiveness to it. 
He says it's sure. That means it's reliable and trustworthy. He says it's right. Because it's right, it shows the right path. It shows correct or gives correct guidance. It shows the proper way. It gives true understanding. He says it's pure, which means it's, it speaks of clarity, right? It's clear. And though Paul does speak of the mysteries of the Word, and there are things of God, the hidden things of God that we can't understand, as a general rule, the Word of God gives clear, distinct direction. He also says it's clean, which means it's uncorrupted, undefiled, and without error. And he says it endures forever. It is everlasting. It never changes. It's always have to be changed. People in all places at all times. It does not have to be changed. It doesn't have to be altered depending upon our circumstances or depending upon the generation. Unlike words of men, it can be trusted. Because it's true and righteous. Which means it is absolutely dependable and reflects the holy character of an unchangeable God. Therefore, he says it gives life. And when he says it gives life, it means that it restores, revives, converts, and transforms the soul. It supplies wisdom. Right? It makes the simple wise. The undiscerning now are able to understand. He says it rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. So clearly and beautifully in these three verses, he says that it is sufficient for salvation. The Word is sufficient for godly living. The Word is sufficient to know what is right and what is wrong. It's sufficient to give us the information that we need at all times in every circumstance. We are not lacking because we have the Word of God. Now, because He's revealed Himself through the world and through the Word, those who've been created in His image must respond. We have to respond, and there are only really two options when it comes to responding. First is described, the first response is described by Paul in Romans chapter 1. Those without faith, when they see or hear, they see, and then as they see, they hear the unending flow of world, a wordless speech that comes from creation, when they hear that, it becomes the motivation to worship the creature rather than the creator, or the handiwork rather than the maker. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 1. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But the glory of the in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. We've all been created to worship. Therefore, we're going to worship something. And those without faith suppress the truth about God, and Paul says that they worship themselves. They worship the environment. 
They worship animals. They worship anything and everything out of which their hearts make idols. And they dismiss His word. They don't just dismiss His word, they disdain His word. They hate His word, they mock His word. Because Jesus says they love the darkness rather than the light. Because their work is evil. And unfortunately, as a result, they remain under the curse of the law that condemns, that condemns them and judgment awaits. There's really no way, that, that's the only way I know to paint the picture. But for those with faith, those with faith, not only does the unending flow of that speechless or that wordless speech or that, that comes from creation, not only does it increase the awe and wonder and joy and worship of the Lord, but it also, it also makes the Word become the most precious of gifts, something to be treasured. Listen to David in verses 10 and 11. He says, they, his words, are more desirable than gold. Yes, then much fine gold. And then he says, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And for those of you that tasted it last week, even sweeter than the Tilly's honey, which was pretty sweet. More so, children, by the way, go home tonight or maybe tomorrow, depending on your tolerance for the sweetness, go home, open the word, read verses 10 and 11 and taste a teaspoon of honey to understand the sweetness that David's talking about, how pleasurable it was, how wonderful it was to him. He says, moreover by them, though, your servant is warned, but he says, in keeping them, there is great reward. I love how Pastor, uh, Pastor Ken Riddlebarger sums this up. He says, to those who fear God and trust in his promise, these words are more the words which give possessions, fame, or great military or political power. These are the words which give meaning to life. These are the words which determine what is right and what is wrong. These are the words which reflect who God is and inform us of what He expects of His creatures. These words show us where danger is found. They show us what things place our souls in jeopardy. These are the words which guide us, and when we obey them, brings us lasting and profound satisfaction. A satisfaction with which material wealth and fame can never give. He says they, go, they are like guardrails on a freeway or a road sign which warns of a hazard ahead. These are the words which reveal to us the will of God. It is here that the key to understanding the meaning of life will be found. David knew that. But he doesn't stop there either. In verses 12 to 14, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David acknowledges that the word of God is desirable. But then he says it's desirable because through it, particularly the moral law of God, it's desirable to him because 
Through it, he becomes keenly aware of his sin. He's not only aware of who God is, the word reveals the Lord, but it also reveals who he is, who we are, which is a man who sins knowingly and unknowingly, intentionally and unintentionally. He believes it to, and he believes that to be a good thing. So what we hear when he says, when he loves the law of God, when he loves the word, he, he, he's speaking of a bittersweetness. Right? The word is both bitter and sweet. His faith leads him to pray, to pray to God and asking that God would reveal the hidden sin within him. He wants it to be revealed so that he can confess it. But then his faith also leads him to understand that he can receive the forgiveness of God as he repents. Because that forgiveness is only provided by the Lord. He knows that it is only as the Lord intervenes that he will be released from his bondage to sin and he will be forgiven by God. And of course, having been forgiven, his natural response is praise and thanksgiving. Desires for his own thoughts, accepted God's word. And having been blessed by it, now he desires for his own thoughts and his own words to be accepted by God. He knows the natural response from guilt being met by God's grace is gratitude. He wants his expressions of gratitude to be pleasing and acceptable and befitting the majesty and glory of God. So, what do we take away? Each paragraph provides us with something to consider. First, God communicates to us through His world. And because He does so, we should take the time to smell the roses, among other things. And what I mean by this is that, uh, boys and girls, it would be, it is a good thing. When, you, um, when you're taking your walks along Kohler Trail and Greenway, or when you're hiking along the Back 40 or Tanyard Creek or Devil's Den, or when you're having picnics in um, Memorial or Compton Parks, those are great ways to spend the Lord's day prior to coming to worship because the Lord desires for us to immerse ourselves in the sights and the sounds, and the textures, and the tastes, and the smells of His creation. We are to enjoy His creation. We are to eat and drink and do all things to the glory of God and appreciate the gifts that He's given to us that are good for us and that bring Him glory. And we're to enjoy those things without reservation. And to do so with thoughtful and thankful hearts. What could you add to the list? What are those things that you could be doing on not just the Lord's Day, but every day? Secondly, God communicates to us through His Word. And because He has spoken through His Word, 
we should take the time to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, and to hear it preached. Beloved, the Bible does not contain His Word. It is His Word. And in His his Word, or His Word, when it is met by His Spirit, it creates faith within us. It is the only book, you see this a lot on, on book lists or reviews and recommendations, but this is the only book that will actually change a life. His voice audible. We hear it read, we hear God's word. And when we hear it read out loud, we hear his voice audibly. You know, our, our, our culture is fascinated with the sensational. Our culture is enamored and fixated on the self, enamored with the self and fixated on the self. And the combination of those things has led to an elevation of mystic-like experiences of personal revelation that undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. But we must keep Paul's words in mind. He said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient, and in it we have, in uh, in Peter's words, all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is why David could say what he says in Psalm 19 and also say what he says in Psalm 119, right? He loved it, and he meditated on it day and night. Because he knew how profitable it was. And so we said, well, how, how should we read it and how should we hear it preached? Listen to larger catechism questions 157 and 60. The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very Word of God and that He only can enable us to understand them, with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. Meditate and confer of it hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. It's to be read and heard with diligence. And then thirdly, God intends for the revealing of Himself through the Word to produce holiness in us. And because of that, we should submit to it as an instrument of sanctification. We should not sit in judgment of it, but place ourselves under its judgment. We should not try to conform it in, uh, to our wills, but co- should conform our wills to it. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 
Right? The, the Word of God penetrates, it pierces, and it defi- divides and discerns our hearts and exposes our sin and our wrong thinking. And we need to pray that the Spirit would use the Word like that uh, surgical instrument of sanctification to reveal and deal with our actions and our thoughts and our desires and our intentions that, that lead to death and need to be removed. But we also need to remember that even though it leaves us bare, it leaves us bare and exposed, that is an act of grace. He is, it's an act of grace because it leads us to Christ. Having been laid bare, we run to Him because He and He only is our perfect high priest. It is His robe of righteousness that we're clothed in. It's in Him that we hide. And beloved, on this side of the cross, we, um, we understand things. We have the benefit of knowing what David didn't at the time that he wrote. The Apostle John wrote this, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Paul wrote, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of life. And Jesus even said in his high priestly prayer to to the Father, for I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth. Brothers and sisters, we understand that Jesus Christ is the author of both the world and the Word. He is both creator and redeemer. We know that He is the one through whom everything was created spiritually and through whom everyone is recreated, uh, through whom everything was created physically and through whom everyone is recreated spiritually. He is the only one who is the perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, immutable, and everlasting Christ, Savior of sinners. life that in Him we find both our physical life and our spiritual life. He's not only redeemed us, but He has removed our guilt for our failure to obey His Word, and He's done so through His death. And He has also met the perfect standard, the perfect standard of righteousness and obedience to His Word for us through His life. So again, in the words of Ken Riddlebarger, when we contemplate the glories of God in the heavens, and when we see His handiwork throughout the earth, and when we understand that His perfections are revealed in His Word, we see something much more than starry skies. We see the glorious and perfect work of our Creator, Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And with David, we cry out, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing or acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock.
my rock and our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless those who have heard your word preached? And may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.